Welcome to Hidden in Plain Sight, the exciting podcast where we investigate and reveal exciting new details about the life of famed Elizabethan dramatist Christopher Marlowe after 1593. The issue for many traditionalists, of course, is that he was supposed to have been very dead after that date. With me, unraveling the mysteries of every episode are my good friends and Marlowe experts, Dr. Peter Hodges and Carol Paxton. Hello, guys. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Julian. I'm glad to be here. Right. When we last met, we talked about the hitherto mysterious Lady Audrey, the wife of Thomas Walsingham, widely believed by many to have been Marlowe's patron. Peter, you also dropped quite the bombshell, claiming that Audrey was originally Marlowe's love interest before she married Thomas. Let's try and unpack this a little, shall we? How could Christopher Marlowe have met Audrey? When and where? Give us the gossip, Peter. The theory that we've been given so far is that he met her during that summer that Pembroke's Men was organized and appears to have been rehearsing its plays for performance in the 1592-93 season under the wing of Mary Sidney, Lady Pembroke, most likely one would think at, at Wilton House, which was outside of London and protected from the plague which had descended on London and had closed the theaters. So the story that we have at this stage is that Christopher Marlowe, having had his fill of working with Edward Allen, which is the complaint that was expressed in the Grotesworth over the upstart crow and all of that, and that was explained in our earlier episodes. And we, could then, also, we could also remark there that Hamlet's instructions to the player King do seem in some ways be telling him, don't be like Ned Allen. Oh, very much so, as, as well as Chip, because uh, he's got a whole thing in there about, you know, don't interrupt the thoughts for junk. And, and juggling. Yeah, that's definitely there. And that's that's the kind of thing that you would imagine Marlowe had simply had quite his fill of by the time he decided to branch off and start working for Pembroke's men. And one would not imagine that Pembroke's men could have been formed uh, in the absence of Marlowe's impetus. If Marlowe hadn't wanted it to happen, or if he hadn't agreed to work for them, or more likely, if he hadn't gone to Mary Sidney and said, I've got an idea for a theater that'll make your name in court, and here are some of the plays I'd like to do, and here's my business plan, she then decides to support it. Things come together, and they pull in the Burbages who've got an empty theater that they need to fill, and they're competing with the Admiral's men. So there's an awful lot of things that come together just in time for them to start rehearsing about that time. And, and you have, of course, the plague that sort of forces them into a room where they can be safe. Now, all of this is going on. And just to take a moment, because by the time we get to Sonnets 41 and 42, something new has happened. In the run of the sonnets, if we're looking at them as a sequence of events, which is what we've been talking about since episode six or seven. So after Marlowe 
flees London and writes that batch of poems about disgraced infortunes in men's eyes. And he then comes to the realization that he's stuck out of London. He's stuck possibly in Flushing with Robert Sidney, Mary Sidney's brother, who's head of the garrison there. And he realizes that he can't go back. And then he writes these three poems, and I'm going to excerpt from these two here, 41, where he's writing to presumably his patron, who may very well be, most likely, Thomas Walsingham. And he says, gentle thou art, and therefore to be one. Beauteous thou art, therefore to be assailed. And when a woman woos, what woman's son will sourly lead her? Till she have prevailed. And then in the subsequent sonnet, he writes, That thou hast her is not all my grief, and yet it may be said, I loved her dearly. Now, if one was to conclude that he's writing about Audrey Walsingham, who Thomas Walsingham ultimately married, and if he's writing to Thomas, talking to him about a woman who wooed him and who then has her, well, it must most likely, very high on the list of probables is Audrey Walsingham that he's talking about. Because if we accept that it's Thomas that he's writing to, he'll have, he'll have some brass writing to him about any other woman. And it will be a nice thing for him to say that he loved Audrey dearly, commending Thomas on the choice of his bride. Shouldn't be such an unacceptable sentiment. It is. Quite frankly, an old, old story of the two friends who fall in love with the same girl. Oh, um, well, a beautiful Arthur girl. Lancelot and Guinevere. And so, and so here he is, he's stuck in Flushing, and Thomas arranges to marry her. He could complain about it violently, the same way he did about having to leave London, but he, he seems to be in a better mood, and he accepts it. Now, the question then is, when would the two of them? for that matter, have met Audrey Walsingham? When could that have, Audrey Shelton, let's say, when could that have happened? And we come to this amazing discovery by Carol last episode. You, you know, I, I was only sitting fiddling around trying to piece together the biography of Audrey Shelton, and I came across the, the recognition that her stepfather was Charles Cornwallis, but even that name didn't ring a bell until, until Kara spoke up and said, wait, is he related to William Cornwallis, who was involved in the Watson affair? Watson, who was Marlowe's best friend and defended him against William Bradley and Hogs Lane and all of that? And I thought, well, I don't know. I think I better follow this up. And I'm here to report, ladies and gentlemen, that in fact, he is the brother of Charles Cornwallis. And that means that Thomas Watson was tutored to her. Thomas Watson was tutored to the cousin of Audrey Shelton Cornwallis. And what an amazing link that would be if Thomas Watson was with Marlowe, with Pembroke's men, rehearsing those plays at Wilton House. What would be more likely? Now, the question I want to ask Carol here is, what really happened there with William Cornwallis and Tom Watson? There was some kind of scandal brewing in that household. Can you tell us about it? Right. 
Well, as far as I have been able to ascertain, and I would really recommend here a fairly recent book, uh, Renaissance Man by Ian Johnson, which is a biography of Thomas Watson. I the only um, one. In fact, the only one, yes. He, Thomas Watson, became a tutor in the Cornwallis household sometime in 1587 or 88, um, actually before the Hog Lane Jewel. And obviously, after he was released from prison, he went back to the Cornwallis household, where he became involved with a plot, I suppose you could call it, that centred around getting Francis Cornwallis, who was the sister of his pupil, John, to sign what effectively was a contract of marriage, a contract to agree to marry Tom Swift, the brother of Hugo Swift, who had acted as the lawyer for the Allen brothers against William Bradley, William Bradley being the person who died in the Hog Lane affair. This is all terribly knotted, but these people are really ever so connected with one another. So Watson and Tom Swift effectively conspired together to persuade Francis, who was maybe 15 at the time, to sign what was effectively a binding contract of marriage with Tom Swift. Um, whether Tom actually wanted to marry her is something of an open question, but it's very likely that the original idea of the plot was that Francis's father would simply pay them off to tear the contract up. It and that's is a, William. Yes, that's William. Yes, I Audrey's step-uncle, I suppose. Right, yes. So we have here a household with which Watson is intimately connected and remains so until this pot which came to a head in 1592. Uh, in 1592, Watson and Hugo Swift, who seems to be very involved in it as well, is essentially needed to make themselves scarce because they had got themselves into a lot of trouble with this plot. And jumping ahead, in the autumn of 1592, um, in September, Watson apparently dies, possibly of the plague, closely followed in early October by Hugo Swift. Hugo Swift perhaps did not die. He reappears, it's recorded in the Queen's Bench Records in 1595. So it would seem that Hugo Swift actually just basically went away and lived quietly in the country for a couple of years and happily allowed people to spread rumours that he died of the plague. Meanwhile, something people tended to do. Thomas yeah. Nash disappeared for a while. and He did. So in the summer of 1592, Thomas Watson certainly had very good reason not to be in London. And I think I uh, would go back to what Peter was saying there. Was he at Wilson House with Marlowe? And of course, the association between Watson and Marlowe is something that I don't think we need to go into in great detail. It's, uh, I think, generally accepted that they knew each other very well, that Watson, who was some nine years older, probably acted as almost an older brother, mentor figure to Marlowe, especially in his early London days after he'd left Cambridge. Watson also knew Thomas Walshingham very well. They both spent time in Paris at the embassy there. 
And indeed, Watson wrote a eulogy for Sir Francis Walshingham, in which he refers to himself and Tom Walshingham as Titterus and Corriadon and reminisces about their time in Paris. Now, I think not all our listeners are so familiar with Watson. For many traditionalists, he appears to have died after his stint in prison, and no more is heard or written about him after that. Can either of you enlighten us a bit more about Thomas Watson? So, so Watson really is looked upon as an operative in the Walsingham network, who, to take a little bit more on background for him, he had been in Italy for not quite 10 years studying law as well as studying Italy generally. There are no specific records, but he himself in his memoir explained how he had been studying law and the inference being that this was done in Padua, which would have been one of the major law colleges in Italy. Now, Watson being in the Cornwallis household in 1587, that puts him in the vicinity of Marlowe when Marlowe is embarking on his career as a playwright. And in my book, Marlowe's Complaint, I detail how a lot of what Marlowe could have written during that period could have leaned on a lot of the information that Watson would have brought back with him from Italy. In particular, if you want to take the, the one published example that remains as yet anonymous and yet sticks out like a, like a sore thumb, if you will, is The Taming of the Shrew, which is the original for The Taming of a Shrew. And you have in it the, the basic plotline outline and all of the details of the Italian area that no one could have known except somebody like Watson who had personally traveled in and around Italy. Now, we also have then this famous or notorious letter written by William Cornwallis to Lord Burley with regard to this affair of his daughter being hoodwinked into marriage thanks to Watson and Swift, where he complains that Watson makes plots all day. And with that, and the reference in Pilatus Tamia, Watson being one of our best for tragedy, the understanding is that Watson was some kind of playwright, but that his name didn't get into publication as a playwright. But that being the case, none of those people who were writing plays at the time that Watson could have been active prior to 1592 were getting their names on plays. So there's that. And one can then assume, or at least make the connection, that Watson and Marlowe would have been collaborators, not only in the spy business, in the intelligence business, but in the playwriting business, where Watson could have delivered plots, ideas for plays. If you accept, for instance, that Romeo and Juliet can be dated from the earthquake in Dover, which happened in 1580 and which is referenced in the play by the nurse who speaks about the earthquake happening 11 years prior, that would put Romeo and Juliet at 1591. And Watson being in Padua back in the day, well, it so happens that Verona is just up the road from Padua. 
Yes. To, and he certainly would have known the story of Romeo and Juliet because everybody in Verona did. I guess. And um, one of the things that is always a bit of a six of one half a dozen of the other is that obviously on one side of the question, we have somebody like Grow who wrote a book about Shakespeare's reference to Italy. And it's quite true. There are some references which are surprisingly accurate and do very much imply somebody who had actually been there. But then on the other hand, we have situations such as Verona. And if you go to Verona nowadays, the most obvious feature of the town, and it must have been like that in the 16th century as well, is the Roman amphitheatre, which gets not a mention at all in the play. If you think about Venice, the description of Venice, it doesn't really seem to have quite enough canals. It always sounds to me in The Merchant of Venice as they were actually in Bruges rather than Venice, in the sense sense that it's got canals, but it's not quite the density of canals. Well, except except that the ghetto, the the Jewish ghetto, is very well represented. It it is, but it's almost as though it's been written by somebody who has his knowledge, in a way, second-hand. He knows a lot because he knows somebody who knows a lot. But it's not necessarily personal knowledge because there are obviously things... Well, that's because, right, that's because Watson yeah. isn't writing the play. Marlowe exactly. isn't writing the play. Exactly. And he's listening to Watson tell these stories, and then he's figuring out how it's going to work on stage. And how many canals do I have to mention? Not so many. And so forth. And and and, and the place he, he Marlowe, quite, quite plausibly knew personally that a city with a lot of canals is Bruges. That's possible, too. Yes, you use that as the model for your envision. So if somebody says to you, it's a city with a lot of canals and you've been to Bruges, that I think is going to be the starting mental image you're going to have. You're going to think of something that you know. I might be talking total nonsense here. but actually get there, you're going to think of something else and compare it to it. Yeah. The other thing about Romeo and Juliet is that uh, it's quite common to see Mercutio described as, quote, Shakespeare's portrait of Marlowe. Perhaps we should be thinking of Mercutio as being Marlowe's portrait of Watson? I absolutely think that. I absolutely think that. I think that's much more likely. Uh, Marlowe was not a sword fighter. We know that because of the hog lane thing. He wasn't very good at it. Watson, on the other hand, could step in and defend him, and Watson was the target of the original attack. If these two guys are writing plays together, and and that play is taking place somewhere around 1591, that ties in with the Hog Lane Affair, which I think was 1590. So Watson is going to fresh out of jail, and they decide to go ahead and throw that incident into the play because it gives them the opportunity to kill off Ned Allen halfway through the play. Which was, as he would have played. Yes, going out on a total limb here, Mercutio has a brother called Valentine. And of course, Valentine is one of the two gentlemen of Verona. His sidekick, Proteus the shapeshifter. Whether we could wonder whether there's something of an autobiographical element in, in there, at least a reference. Uh huh. Yes. I don't know whether that's just because you couldn't think of another name. Yeah. Well, Gosh, I don't know what to make of that. Now, the purpose of this episode is to explain what was happening at Wilton House and whether or not the sonnets can confirm some of that. 
And I think if we now have established the link with Watson and the Cornwallis family, and we've also discussed Anne Cornwallis and her book, which has an awful lot of references to the poetry of the period that was probably floating around both Cornwallis households. And undoubtedly, Audrey Shelton has been living a very quiet life in the Cornwallis household. And how on earth she comes to meet Thomas Walsingham to marry him. It's the same question that you have as to how on earth she could have met Christopher Marlowe. When did these two meet? When did this happen? What was the crossroads? And the crossroads seems most likely to have been that summer when Pembroke's men was rehearsing and Watson ends up there along with Marlowe at Wilton House. And there would have been, one can certainly easily, I don't think you have to imagine what it would have been like in London with the plagues. We recently had an experience with that with the COVID. Nobody got to go out or do anything and people were going nuts. And uh, the politics of the United States, never mind the politics of the rest of the world, been completely upended by that. Everybody was so phenomenally distracted. So just take that experience and frame it backwards to London in 1592 and the plague. You see bodies trundling up the street on a cart that are on their way somewhere to be buried, and there are more coming every day. It's pretty depressing. And you get invited to come out to Lady uh, Pembroke's house to escape all that. It's one big party of all the most rich and famous people and their best entertainers. And if you had the opportunity to do it, why, by God, you do it. And you know Tom Watson, and Tom Watson thinks you're a rather clever girl. You know, you may be all at 24, but you're a very fetching lass, and and you're also quite intelligent. It's not, not a great leap for us to observe that Audrey Shelton was brilliant and beautiful. Everybody said that about her, and her career indicates by every measure that that must have been some of the tools she had to work with, intelligence and beauty. You know, not unheard of. And so, therefore, Watson conceives the idea of inviting her along uh, because she might enjoy it and because uh, she and the sister of the, of the young man that Watson has been tutoring have been sharing these poems that are filtering around the household, both households for all we know, and Audrey accepts the invitation. And the next thing you know, she's out there at Wilton House and we have this incredible series of sonnets, 21 through 24, that has puzzled people for generations, for centuries. Who are they written to? They're obviously the first declaration of true love from the poet to the person that he loves. And so many different varieties of interpretation have been placed on these poems, but there are some key elements to the poem that I want to highlight that lead me to believe that it's most likely Audrey that we're talking about. And the first thing is that there's the mention that, how can I be older than you? Now, at that point, you have to eliminate a lot of people. When the poet declares that he's older than the person that he's in love with, 
People who favored the idea that Marlowe was perhaps homosexual uh, and that Thomas Walsingham may have been the, the, the target of his amour, they somehow forget that Thomas Walsingham was older. Yes. So now they revert to something that might be Southampton. It might be the fair youth, which is a, a sort of nebulous person that no one really knows who that could be, supposedly. But the youth is obviously younger than the poet. And so if that's the person he's talking about, well, you know, he could be any age. But let's take Sonnet 21 to try and help us get our arms around this thing. So here's Sonnet 21. So is it not with me as with that muse, stirred by a painted beauty to his verse, who heaven itself for ornament doth use, and every fair with his fair doth rehearse. Now, we're already sort of in that theatrical space. We're talking about makeup, and we're talking about rehearsing. So it's certainly parallel with the notion that this was written during the period when something like theater was being discussed or was in the air. With the sun and moon, with earth and seas rich gems, with April's firstborn flowers and all things rare, that heaven's air in this huge rondure hymns. Oh, let me, true in love, but truly right, and then believe me, my love is as fair as any mother's child, though not so bright as those gold candles fixed in heaven's air. Let them say more that, like of hearsay, well, I will not praise that purpose not to sell. Now, there's a, an interesting observation made by almost any scholar of any weight that this sonnet in particular appears to be a send-up of one of Thomas Watson's sonnets that were written in his 100 sonnets for the Earl of Oxford. And this would be sonnet number six, where he goes on about the beauty of his love and the color of her hair, and her eyes are like stars. And what this poem is saying is, I'm not going to compare you to all those things. I don't think that's a good comparison. I'm just going to tell you how much I love you. Is it six or I think it's seven, not six. Is it seven? Seven. Hark you that lists to hear what, what saint I serve, her yellow locks exceed the beaten gold. That's the one that, that has her lips more red than any coral stone, her neck more white than aged swans that moan. I'll That's take that. you as right. Yeah. So most scholars of any weight have compared this to Watson's sonnet number seven, which most of these scholars, while they're making this comparison, are pointing out how stilted and formal Watson's poetry is and how much less so we have with this sonnet number 21, where we see someone who is reflecting not only the beauty of his inspiration for the poem, but also the fact that Watson was a more formalistic exercise and wasn't really tied to a specific inspiration. He was writing something that was intended as a platform for how to use language, 
not as an expression of a personal feeling towards a person that he was directly addressing. And this is something that has filtered down over the centuries as as being something sort of notable in the minds of many. And they would say, well, you see how the author here is giving a put down to Watson simultaneously as he's making an advance to his lover, whoever that may be. Of course, if we then assert that Watson was in the vicinity immediately, and Watson may have been the person who introduced this poet's lover to him, then that makes the joke that much more rich, doesn't it? Yes. And of course, that sonnet is not the only time he did it, because jumping ahead, 130 is also a parody of Watson. Yes. Jumping ahead to episode 12, just spoiler alert, folks, stick around, because yes, those of you who know Sonnet 130, and those of you who know the gist of this conversation are making that link already, that Sonnet 21 and Sonnet 130 bear great similarities, and they both appear to be making that same comment about the the extreme formality of Watson's poem versus the extremely personal tone of their own. And this is something that has been noted by a number of scholars, and has led them down the path of thinking that the sonnets are not sequential. Whereas I would say this demonstrates that the sonnets are sequential because it simply means that the poet picked up the theme again when it became necessary to remind the person receiving it where all this started. Yes. And that reminder would be more telling if it started with Watson introducing the two of them. That would be yet another reason to return to the theme of Watson and showing how a formalistic love gets transmuted over time into something that carries all sorts of new implications. But we'll get to that. We still want to dig into these first four sonnets. Guys, guys, I have to say this is yet another fascinating episode, and I'm so happy. I'm happy enough to admit that I learned many new things. These conversations are a source of wonder for me, and I'm sure that our listeners would agree with me. Sadly, though, we are out of time. To all of you out there, please do write in and share your thoughts with us. Are we barking up the wrong tree, or are we just barking? Join us again as we see what else is hidden in plain sight.